0: Hello and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers. And this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's talk. It's tick season. I know that because I've gotten two calls in the or emails in the last few days about tick bites and what to do. So I thought it was a timely topic to discuss Lyme disease. And of course, uh, one of the things that I want to emphasize about Lyme disease is with climate change and uh, an overall increase in the temperatures, we have an increase in the range of the short-legged black tick, which is the vector for limes in most of the area, and we also have an Ixoides tick, the Pacific something or other tick, who also does us the uh, service, if you will, of being a major tick vector. Now, these ticks are small, and if you're interested in finding out more or looking at a picture, the SantaCruzHealth.org website, which is the Santa Cruz County Health Department's moniker, is really very good and has a great discussion of it. In our own community of Santa Cruz, uh, about 2% of the ticks have Lyme disease, and that's been relatively flat for the last 5 to 10 years, so that's good. You know, if you get a tick bite, up, let's say around the university or down in Watsonville, those numbers hold. The only area that has a somewhat higher percentage is the Nicene Marks area, which um, can bounce up to as much as 10 or 12 percent of ticks. I did not find that data online for uh, last year. I am possibly that level of surveillance was. Uh, kind of abandoned with the public health department's focus on COVID. The vector people may have had their hands full with the human vectors and, um, uh, sort of decided to let sleeping ticks lie. But, uh, well, they are out and about. And actually, right now, May and June is the most dangerous, uh, time for tick bites. Well, we're talking about vaccines in as part of this. Uh, segment. But before I talk about vaccines, uh, I've given you a few statistics. Between uh, 2000 and 2020 in Santa Cruz County, there were 133 confirmed cases. Of course, confirming that case means that you have to think about it and test for it. But those confirmed uh, cases are the ones on record. There is a uh, tick disease or com website that I also looked at in preparation today, and uh, they say maybe 10 uh, times that mu- that many, but I don't know what they're basing their estimate on, and they didn't tell me. But uh, in, uh, I believe it was 2013, we had a rash of ticks, uh, and cases of Lyme disease, where uh, we had uh, five whole cases in the county diagnosed. Now, the small ticks, the ones that are the tiny baby nymphs, they're called, and they're they're really tricky. They're like the size of a sesame seed. Okay, you've probably had a sesame, you've probably had, excuse me, They can be the size of a poppy seed. You've probably had a a poppy seed bagel, and you've all had sesame seeds. And these ticks can be just really a pinpoint, a period on the end of a sentence. They are uh, very hard to find, but you will feel them if you run your hands over your body. And so one of the best bits of advice I can give you is if you're out hiking or you're out gardening in a high grass field that you take some precautions and one of them is to make sure you get naked and get get wet and feel everywhere because these guys can crawl and they can they like to crawl up your pants leg but they can drop onto you from a, a blade of grass that's let's say a tall bit of grass that maybe is as tall as your wrist so they could crawl up uh, your shirt, you're not going to feel them. They're so small, they're unlikely to be felt. Larger ticks, you'll usually feel a little twitchy sensation. You may pick those up. So the mature ticks, which also transmit Lyme, uh, you may pick up. I want to start this little discussion by saying that the amount of redness and irritation And swelling that you have around a tick bite is not an indication of infection if it happens within the first 12 hours. Infection with Lyme disease or, which is the more common thing, infection with skin bacteria that you were harboring that just got in as the tick was, was you know, opening your skin up for its own purposes. Now, the rapid... uh, the classic target rash of limes does not o- invariably occur, and it usually occurs after forty-eight hours, and it hangs around for you know as sh- as few as two hours and as long as twenty-four. So it's going to be hard to spot, and it doesn't always look like a target, but it often is erratic in shape. Whereas if you've got an infection, that will tend to be pretty much sim- circumferential. You'll see uh, an expanding ring like a ripple in a pond of uh, infection. And so obviously, if you've got a skin infection, you need to get that taken care of. Lyme disease is going to incubate over the next two weeks before we can even detect it by blood tests. So if you get a tick bite, and it's on your body for less than 24 hours, and you're pretty sure of that because you only went out into a field that last you know last yesterday at 3 p.m and that must be where you got it well you're good because you picked it up on at 8 a.m the following morning just remove the tick there are special tweezers for that you need to get down there you can sometimes use your fingernails try very hard not to uh, pull the head off you rock it back and forth um, along the axis of the body so they're a little, they're oval, but they're flat. So if you can figure out the flat part, you want to rock back and forth along the flat axis because that will work the little pincers loose and let you get free of it. So, so far we've covered showering and time. It's really 36 to 48 hours. And I found this super interesting because I've always wondered why that was. And uh, it's, it's, it's really, really quite, uh, in, it's really kind of cool. So what happens when you get your uh, tick bite is that the tick uh, swallows some blood, right? That's what it's doing. And the, the Borrelia burgdorferi, the Lyme disease, is already sitting in the intestine. And it sits in the intestine and stays there the same way that a tapeworm or any other human intestinal parasite stays there. It holds on. It has a special adhesive surface outer protein, which is important. It's called OS- OSPA, that is an anchor and it attaches it like Velcro to the inside of the tick's intestine, which is great. Now, when they get blood into the gut, the bacteria stop making the uh, the outer surface protein. They say, "Oh." Ooh, blood coming in. I want to climb into that new host. So they stop making their glue. And that allows them to detach and migrate to the tick's saliva glands. So they literally crawl their way up into the saliva glands and then get through the the fangs, if you will, of the tick, the tiny little fangs, into you, and that's how the bacteria pass into their new host. And it takes about 36 hours for them to do that. So they turn off their DNA, they, they the glue wears off, they crawl up into the salivary glands, and that takes a period of time. And that's your safe zone. So finding the tick quickly is really critical. And another thing is if I take a tick off and it looks like it's the right kind of tick, you're going to check your temperature. Everybody now has temperature monitors left over from a couple of, from the last few years. So you monitor your temperature a couple of times a day and you look for a temperature spike. You're going to run a low grade fever if you're incubating Lyme disease. And you'll pro, you'll probably feel a little bit achy. But for those of us who work out regularly, that's nothing special. And for those of us who don't, you may not think anything of it or you may think, Oh, I'm coming down with something, but then you don't that was your window while the tick was dispersing to various places in your body, then it takes, as per what we now know about the immune system from our recent education, it takes a couple of weeks for antibodies to show up. And once those show up, we can find them with a blood test. And the blood test is very accurate, and it's going to be showing early antibodies. So you can look at that and know that you're dealing with an early case of Lyme and get on board with the antibiotics. Uh, Doxycycline and other antibiotics do work. If you start taking antibiotics just based on, oh, I think that might be the wrong tick and my doctor sent me the antibiotics because we had a phone consult, that's fine, but finish them, okay? If you short-circuit the antibiotics, you can increase the risk that your Lyme disease will be difficult to diagnose. And you'll end up going off to the rheumatologist rather than the infectious disease specialist in six months. So definitely important if you do take those antibiotics, remember it, put it in your calendar. And if you get sick and it's mysterious, be prepared to say, well, I got this tick bite and I took antibiotics. But I didn't finish them, you know, cop to it because that is going to lead the doctor to send you to an infectious disease specialist on the possibility that this may be a different, uh, difficult case to diagnose. And that's really key. So before we go to the vaccine, which of course we will go to, I want to give you some really good practical advice. And, uh, this is a chemical compound. It's a natural chemical found in chrysanthemums called pyrethrin. And Pyrethrin kills mosquitoes and ticks. It's used widely as a synthetic version, permethrin, in the farm economy, livestock agriculture, because it is really good for getting rid of flies on your animals. And they can spray it directly on a furred animal, like a horse, and really cut down on the flies, which is great for the horse and great for you. You can't spray it directly on human skin. It's mild neurotoxin, but you can spray it on your clothes. And uh, RID, which is used to take uh, lice out of your furniture. If your kid comes home with lice, you've got to de- disinfect your upholstery. Uh, that will work. Uh, what you want is a, uh, a point, is half a gram per 100 mLs of solution. So uh, half a gram That's 500 milligrams per 100 mLs of uh, solution. That's about three ounces. And you mix that up at that concentration. You can buy this. There's a company called Sawyer that REI uh, sells the spray already diluted, so be careful with that one. And you could also buy the. Concentrate at the livestock stores and the feed stores. And, you know, I have this little tub of concentrate I brought, bought like 15 years ago. The stuff doesn't go bad. And every time I go off to uh, Southeast Asia or, you know, parts where there are going to be mosquitoes and malaria, I just take all of the clothes I'm going to wear and lay them out on the ground and spray them down and then flip them over and spray them down again. This really works, by the way. Uh, the, if mosquitoes land, I know it because when the mosquitoes land on my clothes, they literally drop off me and lie on the ground and wiggle their, wiggle their little feet for a minute and then die. So it really does work. And when you're using it this way, it, for an adult human at least, is not going to be acting as a neurotoxin. You can get the, if you're, if you're more interested in natural toxins, you can get, Natural pyrethrin on Amazon, same thing. Uh, Five hundred milligrams per one hundred mLs of solution is your dose. So, hope that's helpful. And uh, that you know, if we're going to do that, and kind of like, okay, what does that mean? It's a liquid. It's realistically a tenth of a teaspoon in a table in uh, three ounces of water to just take away the scary. Uh, metric measurements and make it simple. Now let's talk about that vaccine. Uh, it's interesting. Remember, I mentioned that uh, I mentioned that the that osp a osp a protein. Well, this is a unique approach. But there's a company that's going after the. Uh, it's called Mass Biologic, and what they're doing is they're in, they're making an anti, an, a monoclonal antibody that targets OSP A. And so, uh, it's going to last. It's going to be a shot. You would get the vaccine maybe, uh, in the winter. If, and then you would have, you would be immune. Excuse me. You'd get the vaccine in the summer, just a day or two before your hike or before you're going to hike the Appalachian Trail or whatever you're going to do. And, uh, you would, have absorbed enough antibody in in 3 days that all of your blood would be immune. So when the, the tick drank your blood, the uh the OspA would be uh basically targeted and the and the tick would not be able to 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 transform and Climb up to the mouth, so you'd be paralyzing the tick and trapping it in the gut, and it would never be able to escape. It would live and die there like Jonah, and uh, good riddance. As far as I'm cons- uh, concerned, now, this has gone as far as being used in monkeys, and uh, it's uh, they put twenty infected ticks on non-human primate primates and got a hundred percent protection. How long will it last? Well, probably two to seven months. They're not really sure yet in humans. Uh, The other approach, of course, is to just uh, go after the COVID, uh, go after, excuse me, misspeech, go after the mRNA itself. So there's two vaccines in the works. One's coming out of Moderna, who's gotten a rather big boost as a company uh, in the last three years. Uh, And this one will... uh, launch human trials this summer with 800 participants on the East Coast. And uh, they've got another vaccine uh, coming out later that they're going to market to Europe because it turns out you can get Lyme disease from slightly different species with slightly different antigens. And uh, so we need to be alert. We need to notice when we get uh, a tick and prevent Uh, It's better to prevent than lament, and that's my advice to you. Two patients and a friend all sent me this article, uh, knowing that I'm very interested in Alzheimer's. Uh, Actually, no, my husband also sent it to me, so I I got a lot of clippings on this. Uh, This uh, version I'm giving to you comes from Nature News. It's a little bit more detailed, but they found this guy in Peru who has uh, a rare genetic mutation that protects him from uh, his fam- familial rare genetic mutation. So, uh, the this family is in Medellin, um, Colombia, and they or some of them are anyway. And there's a guy in uh, the, at the University of Antio um, Antioquia. In Medellin, who named Francisco Lopero, who's been following these people. And there's like 6,000 family members who carry this genetic variant. How did they find them? Well, they get dementia really early, like at 35 or 40, they're starting to get Alzheimer's disease. And they have, and it's called the PISA mutation, and it's a different kind of amyloid precursor protein, the thing that It eventually gets chopped into beta amyloid, and this familial mutation mirrors our Alzheimer's mice, the knockout mice that we've been using to study Alzheimer's for more than thirty years. Problem with that is that it turns out we've been barking up the wrong tree with these amyloid mice, and this this family is not; uh, it's not the right disease. It's uh, the adult onset, later onset Alzheimer's disease that is our real big problem, our looming problem, if you look at the population curve, uh, don't have a, have a variant. And recent research, if you're a regular listener here, you will know that tau protein has come forward. We always knew there were these neurofibrillary tangles in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, but... Uh, We thought that the beta amyloid was the problem because there's this early disease mutation that, in fact, the disease was named after the doctor who discovered the woman who had early onset Alzheimer's, but it's not the same disease. It's rather like type 1 and type 2 diabetes, same name, really different disease. Anyway, getting back to this story uh This this fellow is 67, and he is mildly forgetful. Everybody else in his family gets Alzheimer's in their 40s. So he stood out because he was still standing, so to speak, cognitively. And uh, so they thought, we better run this guy's DNA. And, of course, the technology has changed. So they ran his DNA, and they found he had this rare mutation um that kept his brain from being damaged by the amyloid plaques. Now, if you looked at his brain, it was full of amyloid plaques because he has this mutant, mutant form of beta amyloid, but he didn't have any cognitive issues. And uh, everywhere uh, in his brain had low levels of tau. And so what they found was that he had a mutation in a gene called that they're calling Relin. And Relin is associated, it's a known gene, of course, we have the human genome, and it's associated with brain disorders like schizophrenia and autism. But nobody really associated it with Alzheimer's until now. So the researchers, of course, being, you know, good 21st century researchers, immediately engineered some mice with the same mutation in their Relin. God bless those knockout mice. And so, in the knockout mice, the mutated form of relin caused tau protein to be chemically modified. The chemical modification limited it the ability of tau to cluster around neurons and cause trouble. So, several there are already in the works several therapies targeting tau, but it looks like not all of the subtypes of alpha. It's more evidence that the problem is tau for most cases of uh, amyloid. And in fact, that's backed up by the failure of our very excellent monoclonal anti-amyloid drugs that have been given to people for Alzheimer's, I would add, including the one that actually got through the FDA with minimal, minimal benefit. So this realin protein, we don't really understand how it protects it. We do know that it seems to be associated with ApoE. It binds to the same receptors as ApoE. And somehow, and of course, when people have ApoE4, which is one of the three variants of ApoE commonly found, they have a much higher uh, problem with uh, propensity to develop Alzheimer's. The, your best bet is to have two copies of ApoE2, by the way. And there's some really interesting uh anthropology around uh ApoE2 versus ApoE4. ApoE4, by the way, are much better at fighting off infectious diseases. So again, there's a this is deleterious in the sense that you get Alzheimer's when you're old, but it's good in the sense that you get you live to be old because you fight off all those infectious diseases in the pre antibiotic era. Uh, so it looks like If you have a strong relin protein, you protect the brain against disease and maybe a weaker ApoE because these two are in competition. And how this works is still up in the air, but it's very, very interesting how a compensatory mutation that this guy developed allowed him to reach old age, even though he had a very deleterious mutation initially. And it certainly raises... uh, raises eyebrows and questions. So uh, we're going to go to our first email. This email comes from Ronnie in Santa Cruz. Uh, Ronnie writes, thanks for your show and info. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions, as I haven't in the past had good luck with regular doctors regarding these two programs, problems. I'm an otherwise pretty healthy 82-year-old, no meds and walk fast at least 40 minutes a day. Go Ronnie, eat well, still working as an illustrator, but I have increasingly somewhat painful varicose veins in the legs. Actually painful only when touched, not otherwise, as when walking, etc., but seem to be getting worse. I've been wearing support stockings and putting my legs up. Possible related problem is my right big toe. Doesn't hurt, but I recently noticed it's become white in color across most of the top from where it joins the foot up to the nail. Somewhat less white in the morning after being prone all night. Uh, the toe suffers from bunion, and I wear orthotics, which has enabled me to walk painlessly for quite a few years. Uh, foot docs used to try to talk me into an operation, but uh, with the varicose veins, that uh, that doc w- goofed up an operation I should not have had. It's all okay now, but I'm now hesitant to trust vein type doctors. Would uh, value your ideas, what it might do to help. Well, okay, let's start. She wants to know about nutrition. Uh, keep the salt down. That's and chamomile tea. Maybe don't over-dehydrate yourself. But obviously, varicose veins are carrying blood. So if your blood volume is high, that could be an issue. Uh, herbs, hawthorn has uh, some properties that are beneficial for strengthening the blood vessels. Uh, probably a hawthorn tincture at the maximum packaged recommended dose would be reasonable uh in terms of the i have an idea that it, that these problems are probably unrelated but one of the solutions i'm going to suggest to you is related so let's start with what could be i was thinking to myself okay white in color across most of the top gets a little better after sleeping well when you sleep of course the blood doesn't have to climb to the top of uh to get back into the heart so there's that but I was asking myself, could this just be benign depigmentation, which is to say you've lost your melanin in an area, sort of vitiligo of the toe, if you will. You can look up vitiligo, V-I-T-I-L-A-G-O. It's uh, it's a condition where the melanin, the skin pigment-making cells just die out, and uh, similar to what happens when people get a white streak in their hair. Uh, that would be a benign thing. The a blocked artery would not be good, and I'm a little concerned that maybe there's a a block to one of the very small arteries that's feeding some of your skin. Uh, and the way to tell the difference between those two would be if uh, if it's benign depigmentation, then you should be a, it should blanch when you push on it, and then flush when you stop. Even though there's no color, you should see that the color goes away and the shape of your finger and then when you take the finger it should come back to evenly pigmented. Think about when you're trying to figure out if you have a sunburn and you push on your skin and you see that color change, that's not a tan, that's a sunburn. And so if it were a blocked artery, it might not be particularly serious. There's a lot of collateral circulation there. I think that's unlikely. But given your age, I have to entertain the possibility that you could have some vascular disease besides the varicose veins. Now, in you're, you're very fortunate because in the, the county of Santa Cruz, we actually have a vascular surgeon, which is a specialist who does nothing but blood vessel surgery. And there is a surgery that I think would take away your pain. So if the herbal stuff isn't doing it for you, it's called a saphenous vein ligature. And essentially what they do is they go into the groin area very superficially, find the vein and tie it off. You have two major veins coming up your leg. What this does is shunt the drainage out from those varicose veins where the valves are blown and into the deep veins. I am assuming that what is painful when you touch are these ropes on the outside of your leg. And if that's correct, this would be a solution. So uh, Ronnie, I hope that's been helpful. Uh, Dr. Ruby Lowe, and her last name is spelled L-O. You can look her up. Uh, I do not receive any compensation. I just want you to find yourself a good doctor if it turns out that you need one. Our last email was, uh, it's interesting, I had not planned this. That email just came today. But uh, actually, I've got like the next two articles around. <laughs> relevant in one way or another to some of what Ronnie had to say. So let's start off with uh, lower mortality uh, associated with walking, even as little as two days weekly. But uh, basically all you need is four days weekly. And again, this is one of those steps thing. Uh, They were looking at uh, 8,000 steps daily for one to two days a week, uh, which is Basically, what I manage on a work day if I go to the hospital for, uh, which I found interesting. Though so it's really not that much. And, uh, they, they were looking at all cause mortality, cardiovascular as well as other causes. And, uh, people who walked one to two days weekly, uh, had, lower all-cause mortality. People who walked three to seven days weekly had 17% lower. So that's really not uh, a big difference. They both had relative reductions of cardiovascular death of 8%. So it's really not that much. I think uh, our friend Ronnie, who's walking briskly for 40 minutes a day, is probably getting 8000 a day and there are lots of other benefits besides cardiovascular when you're in your 80s most particularly balance and strength so i'm certainly not dissuading ronnie from what she's doing or you if you are already doing so much but the fact that it that a little went so far i think is great now i want to give you a caveat here because this was a study of 3,100 adult participants. They, it was racially diverse, so that's great, but uh, they probably would not have selected people who had problems with their health or who were unable to complete the study uh, and walk this 8,000. So you're, you're choosing from a population that considers itself to be relatively healthy, so hopefully that's most of you in the listening audience, but I do want to say that that may skew the results somewhat and the benefits somewhat. The more exercise, the better. This is not true. Too much exercise actually can cause, di- uh, well, diminishing benefits, diminishing returns, as we say, but also it re- increases your risk of injury and it's periods of persistent sedentariness that Represent a real risk factor, particularly if there's inflammation or surgery involved, because you injured a bone or ended up, you know, blowing through the last remaining cartilage in your knee. So do what you can do, understanding that you really don't have to go crazy here to get substantial benefit from movement. You know, if you think about the the old hunter-gatherer days, even the smallest amount. Even the oldest person was pretty much able to get up and move around. And moving around is, well, we've structured a society, a culture, a work culture, uh, a transportation culture that discourages getting up and moving around. And really, the only way is for, to fix that is for you to fix that. Uh, our other story that's relevant here, a new option for patients with chronic limb threatening ischemia. Now, of course, Ronnie doesn't have that, but sometimes people get very substantial blockages in their, their popliteal artery from plaque. And this interferes with, often will pick it up with wound healing. Routinely, I do and I teach my, the doctors who come to me to learn physical exam, I teach them how to reflexively check for the foot pulses. It's really, really easy. And making sure those pulses are present, at least in one out of two of the arteries going to the foot, is a really simple screening test. Uh, And it also picks up cardiovascular disease that's unsuspected because some people, it's their leg artery that plugs up before their heart arteries. And uh, I've had a few people who turned out to have silent uh, coronary plaque of up to 90%, but the way we picked that up was not from their their blood cholesterol tests, which were unremarkable, but from the fact that they shut down an artery in their foot, and it was picked up on routine exam. It isn't always symptomatic. That's the problem. So uh, we normally treat this with a shunt, basically taking a fake blood vessel, usually made of uh, Kevlar, And sewing that in there, now uh, researchers have found a way to do catheter-based technologies, very similar to when we put a stent in the heart. And they establish a connection between the uh, artery and an adjacent vein. So they're basically turning the vein into an artery. Now, the artery is a high-pressure system above that blockage. So rather than putting in a shunt, you steal a vein, we have plenty of them in our legs, and you use that to make a sort of artery. And this transcatheter arterialization, as it's called, uh, is easy. It's technically successful in virtually 99% of cases, and it's preventing amputations and helping people with chronic ulcers from poor blood flow, heal rapidly. Uh, it is an a fabulous uh, advance, and I I just love you know I love repurpose recycle so you know use that leave that vein where it is but let's just transfer the blood into it and send it all out there to the foot. It's it's really cool. Well, I've been celebrating technology and celebrating uh, low tech solutions. A little bit. Uh, Let's talk about the dark side of the industry. Uh, This short story, U.S. cardiologists receive substantial industry payments, uh, required disclosures based on the open payments program uh, established by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. This was created under the Affordable Care Act. And what it says is, if you're going to accept payment from Medicare, you need to disclose on this particular website uh, how much you're getting paid from the pharmaceutical industry, from the medical device industry, uh, and biologicals, those monoclonal implants. You have to report uh, payments and also transfers of value, uh, like, for example, the recent the recent scandal with the Supreme Court justice whose nephew received tuition to an expensive uh, school, and uh, this was not reported as a gift to the justice. There were a few other things, but I think this is a really good example of how uh, rich industries, or in the case of the Supreme Court justices, rich individuals can uh, make themselves perhaps favored, either consciously or even subconsciously by people in a position to benefit them directly, like, for example, cardiologists. So the LPP data that was just released looked at 2014 to 2019. And during uh, this period, there were 5.5 million payments given to U.S. cardiologists. By the way, there's 26,000 cardiologists in the country, so that's a lot of payments. And the total worth of this was $1.1 billion. Uh, so if you kind of do the math, they're getting at least a 1000 bucks per payment, probably substantially more in some cases. And uh, this could take the many forms, speakers fees, consulting fees, uh, buying you dinner, okay? But... Uh, some cardiologists a hundred of that 26,000 receive each received more than a million dollars a year and the average cardiologist received about $10,000 a year now of course that doesn't mean that there weren't some cardiologists receiving zero and some receiving three or four times that so i'm not trying to to paint all cardiologists as black and i have re- i have let uh Drug representatives buy lunch for my staff uh, on many occasions and not worried too much about undue influence. But yeah, when you get to the one, $1 million a year, that's a little worrisome. I'll point out that some of these cardiologists serve on major boards like the American College of Cardiology and are responsible for the guidelines that we doctors, we poor, non-million-dollar-receiving non uh, non-million dollar receiving doctors, uh, view as our safe space for patient recommendations. If it's in a guideline, then if something goes bad, I can at least say, well, I was following guidelines. That can protect me in a lawsuit. Going outside of guilo- guidelines certainly makes me more vulnerable in a lawsuit. Uh, anytime you deviate from the safe path, you potentially take a risk. But if that safe path is being defined by people who are being effectively influenced uh, to recommend, for example, oh, giving statins for people with an LDL of 120 and no history of cardiovascular disease and no testicles. There is absolutely no data to support that in the medical scientific literature, but there's a ton of guidelines out there saying do it because, well, you figure it out. More customers, right? We've got 15 minutes, and that's going to give me enough time to talk about cellular housekeeping, and uh, we've already been talking about Alzheimer's and the accumulation of these toxic proteins in the brain, but it's not just the brain, actually. Uh, toxic protein debris shows up inside cells all over the body, and once a cell becomes senescent, as it's called, uh, they, pre- they release peptides that actually have bad influences on healthy cells. It makes them older, getting rid of the senescent cells, taking them out and uh, getting them to be harvested, perhaps recycled, is thought to be the key to slowing down the aging process. And of course, we had talked a couple of weeks ago about the blood transfers where you give young blood to old and what, what uh, and the old mouse or the old human gets a bit better and their blood changes. And what are some of those peptides that change and how can we do this? Well, one of the ways that you can go over, uh, go after senolytics, uh, go after these uh, senescent cells uh, is with drugs. And researchers at the Mayo Clinic uh, found that two drugs that are already approved for other uses have a signaletic effect on the heart. So combined, they harvest and get rid of old cells, and this allows the neighboring cells to return to uh, a good function and uh, start pumping better again. And uh, we'll talk about the drugs in question in just a moment, but aging is really a cluster of diseases and processes, but how rapidly people age. And when you look at the very, very long-lived people, what you see, if you look for senescent cells, is they have a lot fewer of them. So the thing that is the the protective protein that these superagers, the the, the centenarians, seem to have. Uh, in common, is a compound called alpha clotho, and it's a geroprotective protein, and it holds on in people who are really healthy. So the idea was, can you? Uh, in this study, was can we show that alpha that clotho has therapeutic potential, just using drugs that increase it? Because we already know of drugs that. Uh, increase alpha-clotho. And uh, they looked at this in cell culture, human cell cultures, and they used, and I'm about, they also used the uh, urinary alpha-clotho as an assay in patients with a disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And they treated them with the same combination. And Found improvement. Uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is basically a disease where your lungs become prematurely aged. So all your lung cells become senescent. They uh, rapidly at a in your fifties, and you and turn to scar. And so this this type of disease is. We'd love to find a treatment for it and they actually did manage to get funding to test this idea out and they found that two drugs, one of them a natural compound called kercetin, which if you is what I recommend to stabilize your mast cells so you don't get allergy symptoms. It's also when I have someone who's fighting cancer or trying to avoid their cancer coming back, I will put them on kercetin because it's been shown to uh, helps de- cells stay in the sweet spot of not turning into a cancer. The other drug is called Dasatinib, and it's sold under the brand name SpryCell. It's used to treat certain cases of chronic myelogenous leukemia, and these are uh, for people in uh, who have the Philadelphia chromosome positive versions of this, and it's taken orally. Now uh, this is a this is a serious drug, okay? This is a drug that's approved because it's approved for cancer that can kill you. So you can get it can affect the bone marrow. It can cause anemia, it can cause rashes, it can cause swelling in uh, of the blood vessels in the lungs, pulmonary edema, and it can prolong the q t syndrome, so there's a certain number of people who can't take it. Uh, but it is really interesting. That they're both FDA approved, and that they're both oral. So we're looking at clinically translatable uh, senolytics that reduce the that preserve cells in cell culture, and they showed uh, that when they gave it to uh, mice that had that had a lot of senescent cells that had been transplanted in those senescent cells were eliminated and the mice if they were old they got better if they were obese they got young uh, thinner and uh, so it does seem like a sort of fountain of youth kind of agent very preliminary work but i can i can't help but be, be you know really excited that it's an agent that can be taken orally and that it's an agent that uh, one of them is a natural compound. That's just really uh, cool to me. It's not timely, but I'm not going to save this till next spring. But let's talk about the death cap mushroom, Amaniti floides. This is uh, kind of benign looking. Uh, mushroom, you know, doesn't really look, looks very much like edible mushrooms, but the toxin, well, basically it destroys the liver. So you're going to get vomiting, you're going to get seizures, Uh, there's lots of history around using this as a political poison back in the Roman Empire, but uh, just recently published in Nature Communications, a really interesting antidote has been identified. I will add one that's FDA- and EU-approved in humans. Now, having these panels and being able to do the level of work that we're doing, we can go back and data mine. It's like going back into the attic and finding all this useful stuff. We have so many drugs that have very narrow uses, but possibly have very wide applications. And one of them is a chemical that's primarily used as a contrast agent in uh, radiology, indocyanine green. Researchers have discovered that the toxin alpha uh, amitin, um, sorry, alpha amanitin, uh, is the toxin that kills your liver. They found a way to block it from entering cells. The pathway that's available that lets it get into that lets that toxin get into the cells where it can do its damage is blocked by endocyanin green. And this was found by researchers in China, drug development researchers, uh, Kiao Ping Wang and Guohui Wan. Uh, and I apologize if I pronounced that incorrectly. Uh, they used a method that they had previously used to define an antidote for jellyfish venom. Same sort of things. But here's their method it's very cool. First, they used CRISPR Cas9 gene editing. To create a pool of human cells, each with a mutation in a different gene. Then they took those cell lines and they gave them toxin, alpha aminidin, to see which cells survived. And what they found was cells lacking, it's called, uh, by the way, this is now, has a ter- this has a name, it's called a CRISPR Cas9 cellular screen. So it revealed that cells lacking a functional version of a particular enzyme, STT3B, survive. And what we know about STT3B it's uh, similar to the Reelin story today about the Alzheimer's uh, guy. Uh, we know something about what it does. It's part of a biochemical pathway that adds sugar molecules to proteins. Uh, that's called glycation. But hey, um, that doesn't how does that have anything to do with alpha and getting into a cell? Nobody knows. But it works. And so, and this drug, and this can be given in humans. We already tested it for another indication. Indocyanine green was actually invented in the 1950s by Kodak and uh is used in medical imaging. You use it to visualize, you put it in the, uh, put it in IV and look at blood vessels in the eye and blood flow to the liver. And so they took the mice that uh didn't have a functional uh enzyme. Well, first they made some mice that, that um, didn't have STTB3 and they died. So then they thought, well, we'll just give them the endocyanine green and see if it works. And in fact, uh, 50% of the mice survived being a toxic level of poison. So that's pretty cool. And uh, this is a really cool way to find antidotes for things. And because this is already approved to be given intravenously for image, uh, it's very, it, it's very promising. The only problem really is timing. Because in the mice, they were getting this stuff four hours after they were exposed. And if you do accidentally get, uh, death cap mushrooms, you don't end up in the hospital for 24 to 48 hours. So even if we were to block it at that point, it's already inside of the cells. Uh, a natural substance, alpha lipoic acid, which is, uh, an antioxidant and given for liver support has uh, has to be given in very high doses intravenously. But that has also shown promise. And I, I think this happened like 10 years ago and it has become kind of our go-to thing for Amanita is this very, very high dose alpha-lipoic acid. So I guess where I'm going with this is that we have all these cool new technologies and they're allowing us to go back and discover how things that we already are familiar with can be rapidly brought to treat other things without the very cumbersome and very expensive approval process. And that's, like I said, that's like finding what you need already in your attic. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to askdrdon.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at, at @askdrdon. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.